0: Well happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive and we are celebrating him today. I'd love to just introduce you. My, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Frontline. And uh, I'd love, as we turn our thoughts to the resurrection story this morning, I'd love to just begin by asking a question. So I just want to pose a question to maybe frame our thinking and the way we approach the story this morning. And this is the question: have you settled for circumstantial happiness instead of real hope? I'd love for you to think about that, whether you've been in church all your life, you grew up in church, or whether this is the first time you've ever come to church in your whole life, if you could answer that question, have you settled for circumstantial happiness instead of real hope? At the end of the day, I think what we all really would say we want is real and lasting hope. That's what we all want. That's how we would answer that. But, but the reality is oftentimes we settle for just happiness in our passing, immediate, temporary circumstances that we find ourselves in. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a story that happens in the Gospels on Resurrection Sunday. It's a story on on the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And and here's what's amazing to me about this story that we're going to look at is Jesus, he raises from the grave and with his newfound power, he doesn't like go out and solve world hunger or anything dramatic like that. He doesn't even open a Chick-fil-A He doesn't even do that. What Jesus does is he chases down these two disciples who have lost hope, who have just become discouraged after watching Jesus die on the cross a few days before because he wants to make sure they get it. He wants to make sure they understand who he is and what he was all about. And so we're gonna look at this story together. It's in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. And I think the reason that we look at stories like this. And the reason I think that stories like this exist in the scriptures, why the writers included stories like this is because I think we're supposed to read them and we're supposed to see ourselves in the story. And so that's actually been my prayer for all of you here today, all three of our services this morning, is just as we look at this story that you'll see yourself a little bit in these disciples and in the interaction that they have with Jesus. So here's how it goes. Luke 24, verse 13 It says, that same day, Resurrection Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from being able to recognize him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who has not heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. I'd love if we could, if we could just sort of sit in the irony of this moment uh, just for a period of time here. So what's happening is these disciples, they're walking, they're discouraged, they're downtrodden, they're walking to this village called Emmaus. And as they're they're walking, Jesus appears to them and they don't recognize him. And they say these three words, these powerful three words, We had hoped. We had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to be the Messiah that would come and rescue Israel. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Rescue Israel from who? Who? The answer is the Romans. At this time in first century Palestine, the Romans had occupied the area. And so even in the city of Jerusalem, the Israel, God's people, they weren't free. They weren't autonomous. They weren't able to make their own decisions. They were under power by this foreign army. And so many Jewish people at this time, what they believed is that when the Messiah came, that what he would do is he would be a great military and political leader. And so what he would do is he would bring back the good old days of Israel and he would overthrow the Romans and he would bring them back to prominence again. That's what they were hoping for. And so, so get a load of the irony of this moment. Here they are, they're so discouraged, they're walking and Jesus appears and starts walking with them and he's just conquered death. We forget about the Romans, right? He's just conquered death. But they can't even recognize him because they're so discouraged with what God didn't do that they had been hoping he would do have you ever said these words we had hoped that the money was going to last we had hoped that the marriage was going to work sorry kids we had hoped that the pregnancy was going to go full term this time We had hope, but it didn't happen. I mean, if you think about it, hope is this really fragile thing, isn't it? I mean, all of us, we we have this way of putting our hope in something. Every single one of us in this room, you're putting your hope in something. You just are. As human beings, we're hardwired to do that. These three words are just dripping with disappointment. Because what happens is most of the time, we put our hope in something that we believe is gonna create circumstantial happiness for us. We put our hope in things that we think will, will make our circumstances happier and better for us. Our temporary passing, immediate situations will be better in this life. And that's what we're hoping for, that's what we're looking for. So we put our hope in a job. So we say, well, I'll leave this job I'm at, and I'll go take this job over here because then I'll be happy. Or we put our hope in a relationship and so the person we're with, will leave them and we'll go to be in a relationship with this person because then I'll be happy and we'll put our hope in that person. Or we'll put our hope in maybe like a political candidate. Oh, that person, when they go to, like, they're going to fix it all and it's all going to be better. Or we put our hope in, for some of us, it's the church. Maybe you put your hope in, in, a, in a church, and a group of people and that was where your hope was. And, and, and every well, the problem is whenever we do that, we put our hope in those things and maybe it'll create temporary you know, happiness in our circumstances for a little while, but at the end of the day, that's not real lasting hope. It can't be. I've said these words, we had hoped. This is a weird Easter for me. Uh, I know a lot of you in this room don't know me, uh, but I was realizing this week as I was preparing that today is the four year anniversary of something that happened in my life. In the third week of April in 2015, four years ago today, I stood right here on this stage after a week where I had gone through a bunch of medical tests and a biopsy and I stood on this stage and I said, we had hoped that it wasn't cancer, but it was. And so, I announced that to you guys, my church family, and I have never, before or ever since, I have never felt so completely out of control of my life, so completely out of control of of what was coming next and what was going to happen next. And man, God has been so good in in these last four years. He has walked with me just like Jesus is walking with those disciples on on this road in the midst of their discouragement and doubt. And he's done so many things in my life over the last four years. And right now, praise God, the prognosis is good for now. And I'm really thankful for that standing here three four years later on the third weekend of April. Yeah, praise God for that. But here's the thing I remember that Sunday, four years ago, I remember having conversations in my head with God, and the conversations went something like this Are you serious? I'm a pastor. Here, I'm serving you. I'm, I'm trying to do good in this world. I'm trying to help people. And you allow this to happen in my life? You allow this to take place in my circumstances? I had hoped that you were going to be better than that. So I just want to ask, what does Jesus have to offer us when we say these three words? What did Jesus have to offer these two disciples in the midst of their discouragement We had hoped that Jesus was going to be the Messiah that would rescue Israel. Let's let's look at what he says to them. Verse 22, the disciples go on. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. Thank you, Jesus. I love that he starts with that. (laughs) You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then, don't miss this, Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. So what does Jesus do here in this moment as as they're walking along? He begins to take them back uh, and and he begins to talk about Moses and the prophets. And he's going back through all the scriptures uh, of what we would call the Old Testament. The Old Testament of of the Bible is what he was taking them back through. So he takes these, these two guys through their own story. The story of God's people. And he begins and he, and he begins talking about how each one of these characters, each point in the story pointed toward a greater reality. It pointed toward himself. And he, and he talked about how each part of the story proclaimed who he was. And it talked about how he, the Messiah would come and he would suffer and he would die a sacrificial death on behalf of all of us before he would enter his glory, before he would be risen from the grave. Don't you wish you could have heard that sermon? It would have been a lot better than this one, I can tell you that. (laughs) So so we're left with the question when we read this, what did Jesus share with them? Luke doesn't go into details sharing exactly what Jesus said, but Jesus walks them back through the the entire story of Scripture and talked about how it pointed to him. So what I'd love to do is I'd love to take a minute, just watch this three-minute video. I, I believe Jesus shared something with those two disciples like this. Have a look.
1: The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater, The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus.
0: And even better than that, he is the true and better thing than whatever it is that you've been placing your hope in. Jesus wants to be the source of hope in your life that nothing else has been able to be. He wants to walk with you and he wants to reveal who he is to you. Let's continue with this story. Verse 28, by this time, They were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on without them, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? I love this. They, they come to this place where they recognize who Jesus is. Their eyes are open and, and they recognize him for who he is, that he is who he said he was. And they recognize that Jesus has done something far greater for them than what they were hoping he was going to do. Jesus has done something far greater for you and for me than anything that we walked in this door hoping he was going to do in our temporary circumstances of life. More than circumstantial happiness, he has conquered death and he's invited us into eternal life. That's real hope. There's something interesting in this story that's going on If you notice, Luke keeps repeating this detail of the story. The disciples, they're walking to a village called, what is it? Did you catch it? Emmaus. That's right. He mentions it again a little bit later. Oh, by the way, they were were on their way to Emmaus. And then just in the passage we read, he said, they were almost to Emmaus. He keeps telling us, Emmaus, Emmaus. That's where they're going. Well, why? Where is this place? Why does he want us to know that? Why would he include that detail? It's interesting. We actually don't know where exactly the village of Emmaus is was, but what scholars believe is that Emmaus was a reference to a place that appeared earlier in the story of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the story of one of the forefathers of the faith named Jacob. Jacob is in this place and he lays his head down on a rock and he goes to sleep and he has this encounter with God. And when he wakes up, the famous line that he says is he says, surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. And so Jesus appears and walks with these two disciples on the road to this exact same place. And they don't recognize him, they don't recognize him. But then when, they're, when they get there, they have this encounter and they realize surely God has been with us this whole time. And we did not realize it, we weren't aware of it. And that's how God works in our lives. That's how he works for each one of us. Each and every one of us have to come to this place on our own spiritual journey where we recognize who Jesus is. And we acknowledge him for who he is and what he's come to do in our lives. For some of us, the way that happens, it happens differently for for different ones of us. For some of us, it's through an experience of suffering, much like the biblical character, Job. We go through a time of suffering where everything breaks, everything falls apart. And we discover that God, surely God has been with us in the midst of this time. And we weren't maybe always aware of it. But looking back, we realize that there's, there's parts of who God is, the goodness of God. There are parts of who he is that we can't fully know if we've only experienced good times. And Our eyes are opened for others of us. Maybe the way our eyes are opened and we recognize Jesus is through an experience of love, undeserved grace and love and forgiveness from a a family member or a friend that we don't really deserve. Like the story of Ruth that we looked at a few weeks ago. Maybe for some of us, it happens through some kind of experience in life that we just can't explain. We just can't make sense of it rationally. Like Moses with the burning bush, God appears and speaks to him and, and he realizes God is is with him and has a calling on his life. And maybe you've had an experience, you just can't make sense of it. You can't explain it any other way than surely God has been in this place. And I was not aware of it. Surely he's been at work in my life and I wasn't aware of it. Over the last uh, eight weeks, we've been working our way through a series here at Frontline called This Is Us. What we've been doing is we've been looking at Um, the the story of the Old Testament, just like Jesus was taking these two disciples through the story of the Old Testament. We've been looking at all these different characters all the way throughout the story. And we've been looking at how each one of their lives foretold the story of Jesus and pointed to the person of Jesus and how Jesus came to fulfill all of that. And what we've learned as we've looked at the Old Testament is that God, the Old Testament is full of these promises from God. He promises to bless his people if they're able to be obedient to him. Sounds great, doesn't it? The problem is not a single one of them is able to be obedient. Not a single one of them fully experiences the promises of God until Jesus, he's the first. The Bible says Jesus came into this earth. He he put on human flesh and he came and lived a life as a human being that God himself took on flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was fully obedient to God. and He fulfilled the requirements of the law. And so now the blessings and the promises of God apply to us through the person of Jesus. So to bypass Jesus and try to attain God's blessings in some other way is to believe a false gospel. That's no hope. That's not real hope at all. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because oftentimes what we do is when we start to recognize me, God is, God is at work. I think he's real. I think, I, I think I'm beginning to recognize who he is. What we think to ourselves is, well, I guess I better just start being a really good person now. Like I better try to live a good life. And so we try to be good and we try to do good. Like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna try to be more generous. I'm gonna try to attend church, you know, every once in a while. And we start trying to be good enough to attain God's blessings and his, and his promises in our life. But that's not hope. That's not the gospel. The, the gospel is the best news on earth because Jesus already did it on our behalf. And he wants to be that source of hope. He wants to be that connection to God in our lives through us, through, through him. And So what I learned four years ago and over the last four years from that Sunday, the third weekend of April in 2015 to now, and it's what I feel like God wanted me just to say today as simply as I possibly can is that hope What what I've learned is hope is not a cure for a disease that will elongate my life on this earth a little bit longer. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And outside of him, there is no real hope, he's it. He is the lifeline from God. And in him, we find real and lasting hope for a life that goes through this one and beyond the moment of our death. And so that's what he wants to invite us into. And so the question that remains is, what are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do with him? I'd love for you just to take a moment and sit, and the band is gonna play a song. I would love for you to just sit and reflect, listen to the words of this song. And I want you to reflect on who Jesus is. Who do you believe Jesus is? And what are you gonna do with him? I'd love if you could stay standing and if we could stay in this moment together. I'd love to just finish the story. It's one sentence, verse 33 says, And within the hour, they, the two disciples, were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them. So the way the story ends is after they recognize Jesus and they, they have this encounter where they realize who he is, they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem to the very place where Jesus was crucified, back to where it all happened, because they want, they join this community of disciples. And if you know the story of the Bible, what happens from there is it right there in the city of Jerusalem with these people who gathered together, they started something called the church. And the church exists even to this day, even right now to proclaim the news of Jesus and the hope that is found in Jesus alone. And that's what we're about as a church. We exist as a church. Our mission is to proclaim the name of Jesus and the hope of Jesus to the point where there would be zero people in our world that don't have the hope, the real lasting hope of a life in Christ. So what I want to do right now is I want to invite you uh, to do exactly what these disciples did, to join with the rest of us who believe and to say, so will I, so will I. The reason these disciples go back is because they go from hoping to something even better than hoping. They go to believing in who Jesus is. Romans 10, what it says is that if we believe with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that Jesus rose from the grave, we will be saved. That we enter into a new life with him. So would you bow your heads with me? Everybody in this place, I want to lead you in... Not so much a prayer, it's, it's more a confession of Jesus as Lord to move beyond circumstantial happiness and hoping you can be good enough to actually putting your trust and your faith in Jesus. And so if that's you, if you know you're at this point, if you know that's who you are and it's time to surrender your life to Jesus, you need to know God is still the God. Jesus is still the one who chases down people who have lost hope and found discouragement and doubt and invites them to trust in him and who he is. And so I wanna invite you, if that's you, to pray this prayer with me. You can use your own words or you can borrow mine. Jesus, we come before you now. We recognize you are who you said you are. I believe you are the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross in my place. And I believe you rose again. So I confess you, Jesus, as Lord of my life. I believe that you rose from the grave. And I invite you right now to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to give me a new life in you, to give me hope, real and lasting hope for eternity. It's in Jesus' name
1: I pray, amen.